And the church often doesn't know how to talk about it. We know that this pain and brokenness is not the way God wants it. But just saying no and refusing to discuss it is not necessarily a very helpful response. The sober truth is that sexuality and spirituality are deeply intertwined. And the church often talks about spirituality, but without realizing that sexuality is also part of our spirituality. And I don't think we talk enough about sex in our churches and Christian homes, even though it's a subject that interests us and that all of us experience in some way personally. So it's difficult to talk about publicly because it's so very personal. It's sensitive, even controversial. And that's why, that's why your pastor asked a guest speaker to talk about it. <laughs> While he's a long ways away. And he gave me kind of a window of chapters in the book of Genesis to talk on. And you'll notice chapter 39, which we talk about today, if you want to read the other choice in chapter 38, uh, you'll know why uh, chapter 39 is the uh, better of the two, even though it also is uh, a sensitive story. So let's look at this story. First of all, we need to see this story in Genesis 39 as part of a much larger story. The story of Joseph and uh, Potiphar's wife is not primarily about what to do when someone wants to have sex with us that we're not married to. That is not the primary point of this story. Old Testament stories must be interpreted as part of the bigger story. Not illustrations or lists of kind of propositional points Here's what to do if you get into this situation. All of Genesis 37 to 50, except for chapter 38, is one story of Joseph. And I would say that even chapter 38 illustrates the same point that all of chapters 37 to 50 makes. So to be exegetically correct, we should take the whole story together and consider it all. Now, I will only take one chapter in this larger story, but we need to see this story in this chapter as a subpoint of this bigger story, uh, which you'll see completed also, uh, or at least uh, another section of it next uh, week. This story in chapter 39, if you have your Bibles, you'll notice the first few verses and the last few verses give you the clue as to what the point of this story is in the context of the entire Joseph story. And it is that God was with Joseph. And things went very well for him as a result. And this well-being enabled him to save his entire family. In fact, as my colleague Ken Esau, uh, who will be preaching next Sunday, would tell you, he would tell you, this is in fact the theme of the entire Old Testament. That God was present with the chosen people. 
but not because they were somehow special, but because God wanted to bring shalom, salvation, to the entire world through that chosen nation and through this one young man that we meet in our story today. God's choosing of people is to bring shalom to all. In this story, Joseph's Egyptian master realizes that God was with Joseph in a special way and that everything he did turned out well. He has an insight into that whole theme because that's what God is about. And so we need to see this particular melodrama, this soap opera, uh, in that bigger picture, in that bigger story. And that's why Joseph endears himself to Potiphar. And he puts him in charge of all his affairs. And all because of Joseph, not because of Joseph, but because of God's presence with Joseph, thanks uh, to the people who chose the songs, a lot of songs about God's presence. That is what's key here in this story. So Potiphar didn't have to worry about a thing other than making sure to show up for meals. What a life. But all this good fortune has a subplot, a rather sinister subplot, which becomes our theme for today. Joseph had become this handsome young man. And as time went on, his master's wife became infatuated with Joseph and one day attempts to seduce him. Come to bed with me, she coos. Absolutely not, he says. How could I when your husband trusts me with everything he owns? He puts me in charge of everything and treats me like an equal. The only thing he hasn't turned over to me is you. You're his wife after all. How could I violate his trust and sin against God? Oh, she continues to plead. He's never at home and I'm so lonely. You're so good looking. I want you so bad. You're so good looking and so on and so on. She pesters him every day, but he continues to stand his ground and refuses to have any sexual contact with her. One of these days, it so happens that there's nobody else in the house except for the two of them, and she grabs Joseph by the cloak and begs him passionately, come have sex with me. Joseph leaves his cloak in her hands and runs out of the house. And when she realizes she's been, she's been foiled again, she screams, rape, rape, servants, come help me. Come quick, this Hebrew servant is trying to rape me. And I yelled and screamed and he ran off leaving his cloak. Look at this, this is evidence. And she keeps the evidence and tells her astonished husband when he comes home the same story. This Hebrew you hired tried to rape me. And when his master hears of this, of course, he's furious and throws Joseph into jail. But then you notice the other bookend to the end of the story. But even in jail, God was with Joseph. God was kind to him, put him on good terms with the head jailer, and he starts looking after the entire prison population. There was ever, never anything to fear when Joseph was in charge because 
God saw to it that everything turned out well. Now let's reflect on the story for a few moments. The story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife has always been a, a powerful story for me. Now Joseph was obviously an attractive young man, but one who was loyal to his master and to his God ahead of his ability to perform sexually. Joseph did not cease to be who he was. A man with sexual desires and sexual attractiveness. But he did not let his libido dictate his behavior. Joseph stayed true to himself and was willing to accept the consequences without compromising his identity or his principles. Now this is a powerful story. Not only because Joseph as a young man resists his boss's wife's sexual advances. That's the obvious exterior story. And many sermons have been preached to young people, uh, especially young men probably, uh, moralizing about the three R's of sexual purity or something like that. You know, you should resist, respond, or run, or whatever clever alliteration the preacher can come up with. But if we consider, again, the theme of the entire story, God's presence and protection of Joseph in order to save his family and the nation and eventually all, uh, we might see a deeper message. One that we can identify with as human beings who face similar struggles and temptations. That's why this is such a personal story. And so we need to ask ourselves, will I be true to myself, my people, my family, my God, maintaining integrity in the long term? Or will I yield to the momentary pleasure that boosts my ego in the present? Now, the former way of looking at the story has a clear message about what the proper moral behavior should be. Here's the rules. But I think the latter gets us to reflect more deeply and reflectively about spirituality and identity. It's about morality that comes from within rather than imposed on from without. It's like the, when the parent, when my uh, kid's uh, by the way, my kids are 21, 19, 17, and 10. Uh, the uh, bio is a couple of years outdated. Uh, and when, especially when your teenage kids or young adult kids leave, you don't say, don't do this and don't do that, because they'll probably do it then. But I think a better phrase is, remember who you are. The most important thing is not the moral or the answer imposed by some preacher or parent at the end of the story. Okay, kids, don't have sex to someone you're not married to. Anyone can set up rules that can be kept or broken. But what do we do when we're in a new situation where the old rules don't apply exactly? My dad never taught me about situations like this. If you're a Pharisee, you just make up another rule. 
But life is ambiguous sometimes, especially in the area of sexuality. We don't know all the situations that we're going to get ourselves into. It becomes very personal and, and we just don't know. And so then we need something more than just a list of do's and don'ts. And mostly don'ts when it comes to sexuality. Because we come across these situations in this culture of sexual pain and sexual brokenness. It's real. I won't tell you my whole story. You can uh, buy, my, buy my book and you can read some of my own issues uh, around this. Uh, but rather than just making Joseph's story kind of here's what to do or not to do, Let's look at Joseph as a companion on the journey. Here's somebody who's had some experiences that we can identify with. We're all on this journey. We're all tempted by the sexual culture that we live in. And the most important question is not so much what we do, but who we are. Joseph was rooted in who he was as a child of God. God was with him so that his entire family could be saved. That's the main theme of the stories about his life. And Joseph was in touch with that theme and that presence of God. That's who he was. And that Identity enabled him to respond in a, in, in a situation I'm sure he never thought he'd get himself into. There was no rules to help him with that. Who he was then provided guidance for how he lived in this incident with Potiphar's wife and also for the rest of his life. So let's reflect a little bit more on the theme of sexuality in light of uh, this story. Sexuality is about more than having sex. If anybody has read uh, Rob Bell's uh, book, Sex God, it's a wonderful explanation of that phrase. Sexuality is about more than having sex. I have a friend uh, who lives in uh, Intercourse, Pennsylvania in the heart of Amish country. Now there's a thriving tourist industry there, built around the apparent juxtaposition of uh, conservative Amish people and the sexually suggestive name of the town, especially when the neighboring town to intercourse is called Paradise. Uh, the t-shirt sales abound. And of course, they don't realize the Amish have more kids than uh, most other ethnic uh, groups. Anyway. But intercourse was simply named for two roads that intercoursed at that location. It's, an, it's another word for intersection. It describes a meeting of two roads. Intercourse also describes a meeting. Sexuality is about the meeting of bodies, but not only the meeting of bodies. 
but the meeting of whole people. My body is very much a part of who I am and my spirituality, but it does not define all that I am. I am a body, and sexuality is about the meeting of bodies, but we are whole people. Sexuality is part of the creation story in the book of Genesis. You can put that next uh, slide up there uh, on the, uh, the meeting of bodies. And there you go. Sexuality is part of the creation story in the book of Genesis, which you've... Uh, just that first one right now. Anyway. Uh, sexuality is part of the creation story in the book of Genesis. I guess you, they can't, you can't separate them. Sorry, I didn't animate that right. Sexuality is part of the creation story in the book of Genesis, as you've seen already in part one. It was not good for the man to be alone, so a woman was created to be in relationship with the man. Sexuality is about relationship and deep, intimate connection with another human being. As Adam says in chapter 2, verse 23, you are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The man and woman become one flesh in sexual union. But it is more than two bodies made one. This is where the King James Version is superior. The King James Version said they knew each other. And that knew each other is not a euphemism. That describes exactly what sexuality is. Now, later translations, I think, don't have it quite as good. The NIV says Adam lay with his wife Eve. Uh, the Living Bible says Adam had sexual intercourse with Eve. The Message says Adam slept with his wife Eve. The TNIV says Adam made love to his wife Eve. But I believe that it is about knowing. It applies an intimate knowledge of the other. A complete nakedness not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually, in every way. Sexuality is about making ourselves vulnerable to another. Being in intimate relationship. And that is personal. And it's deep. Let's bring another word in at this point, which was in the title, the word fidelity. Fidelity is loyalty, being true. Now, we often think of true as a statement that is fact, but there's a much deeper meaning to true, and that is being true. The story of Joseph illustrates sexual fidelity. Of a, of, uh, in his relationships. His fidelity to a sexually enticing woman, his fidelity to a man who was his boss, and his fidelity in his relationship with God, who was actively caring for him and with him. Fidelity is about loyalty and commitment. And so sexual fidelity is about loyalty and commitment in our intimate relationships. Today, we find our sexual fidelity threatened on a number of fronts. Or we could put it more positively, 
there are various ways that we can live out our sexual fidelity. In this story, Joseph shows a remarkable sexual fidelity to himself and all the other people involved in the situation. And today we face similar but different kinds of temptations, although they take an increasingly myriad of forms through the media. And the response of a dispassionate just-say-no is deeply inadequate. But a commitment to value and protect the deep connection that happens between people is what motivates us in fidelity. Sex is not mere biology. It's a deeply spiritual and emotional union as well as physical togetherness. And so we make ourselves vulnerable and completely open to another person. Fidelity is creating some protection and boundaries around sexuality. Waiting for sex until marriage and keeping sex in marriage is not merely old-fashioned prudishness. It recognizes the deep intersection of spirituality and sexuality. And it is giving sacred dignity to our future or our present sexual partner. Now, sexual fidelity applies across the board of sexual orientation, of marital status, of whatever situation we might find ourselves in. Jesus doesn't offer a case for either marriage or celibacy. And I see two options for followers of Jesus. Celibacy or marriage against our culture and with centuries of church tradition. That single people are celibate. And, but Jesus doesn't offer a case for celibacy or marriage. And he doesn't really say a whole lot about sexual behavior in the Gospels. But there is a theme that goes much deeper in the Gospels. Jesus has a view towards a much larger goal. Faithful discipleship to Christ himself in all of life. Such faithful discipleship takes place in the context of faithful marriages and faithful service as celibates in the kingdom of God. Joseph's sexual fidelity is grounded in his spiritual integrity and his commitment to God. And so the story then challenges us toward a bodily, rooted, and connected spirituality that is lived out at the dinner table, on the sidewalk, and in the bedroom. Both celibacy, or singleness, and marriage require lifelong vows to one person or several people. Because living out those vows teaches a person how to love. To paraphrase Dorothy Day, 
Vows remind us that as Christians, we are not called so much to be successful in our loving as to be faithful to God, whom we know as love. Single people and married people need each other to help them fulfill their vows. And yes, married people speak those vows on their wedding day, but single people also live by vows. Each state of life has gifts to offer the other. And I would say the gifts of single adults especially have been underappreciated in Protestant churches over the past five centuries. We seem to assume, and I think wrongly so, and we seem to assume with our culture that adults have to be sexually active and for evangelicals then have to be married to be a whole person. That is so wrong and so unbiblical. Churches need to be more involved in supporting people toward a robust sexual fidelity, whatever state of life they find themselves in, whether single or married. You don't have to have sex to be a sexual person. We are all sexual. And we're all involved in intimate relationships. So I don't have three points for sexual behavior in this story. Really, it's the story of how God protected one young man so that his entire family could be saved. And this one, one dramatic moment in the life of Joseph, uh, the story told in Genesis 39, illustrates something about sexual fidelity, about loyalty in relationships. Joseph says no to his boss's wife's sexual advances, but on a much deeper level, he says yes to fidelity in all his relationships. Most importantly, his relationship with God. And as I said before, our sexuality and our spirituality are deeply intertwined. As I like to say, inextricably intertwined. You can't take them apart. Which is why there is so much sexual pain in our culture because, as Tina Turner used to sing, let's just get physical. It's not just physical. You can't take those apart, and when you try, there's pain. Men and women are whole people, and we cannot extract our spirits from our bodies or our bodies from our spirits. It is a holistic, sensual, bodily, social, sexual spirituality. Sexual fidelity is about loyalty and depth in all our relationships. With marriage partners, with relatives, with friends, and colleagues. And so let's end where we began. And the band can get ready to uh, come up to offer our closing prayer and song. Let's end where we began with the main point of the entire Joseph story. God is with this young man, Joseph, not because he is somehow more special than anyone else. 
but so that God can use him to bring shalom to his family and the entire nation he serves. In our specific story today, Joseph's sexual fidelity, his loyalty to God and the people in his life, are a participation in God's much larger work of shalom and salvation. Even our sexuality, all of our life, is a participation in God's much bigger work. And so as we are loyal and true in our relationships with our friends, our partners, we also participate in God's work of bringing shalom and salvation to the world. Not only for our personal well-being, but for the well-being of all that we come in contact with.